Of course, with you present and any other visitors that might be here, our church is doing something that we call the Year of the Bible, where we're taking January to December, uh, going from Genesis to Revelation, um, really stopping on all the, the main key points, if you will, the main Meta narrative, the main thread of scripture, the main story of scripture. And so right now, uh, we find ourselves in 2 Samuel. If any of you want to jump in with us on this reading plan and in this year of the Bible, you can find that reading plan at the top of our website. Just go to wog.church, wog.church, and or you can grab our reading plan at the info desk uh, out there once the service is over. We'd love to have you join with us in this as God's been doing some pretty awesome things with it. If you're an adult, you have in all likelihood participated in what is called a house hunt, house hunting. Now, some of you at the mention of that phrase might have some fond memories of yesteryear and when you were first venturing into the housing market with your spouse. Some of you might have some triggers and some tweaks coming out on bad memories and experiences of house hunting in your past. And of course, we're not talking about something, when we say house hunting, we're not talking about anything that includes camouflage and weaponry and decoys. And hopefully not, anyways. If that is the case for you, maybe find a new realtor. Um, but house hunting can be a very frustrating experience. It can be a challenge getting a husband and a wife on the same page as for what they're hoping for and what their expectations are. And I don't know if you've ever watched any of the TV shows where they're following a couple who is house hunting. And I always feel so bad for the realtor in those TV shows. Like, especially if you've ever watched um, House Hunters. Well, there you go. There's the name of the show is House Hunters. And I always feel so bad for the realtor because they're always like, Hans and Jan are looking for their dream home in Topeka, Kansas. Jan wants to move into a, a move-in ready turnkey oceanfront condo with access to local shops and restaurants and ice skating. I guess nobody caught the joke that we're in Topeka, Kansas, and we said oceanfront. <laughs> While Hans wants a mountainside villa fixer-upper that's rural, yet also close to his job downtown. They have seven kids and want a seven-bath, seven-bedroom house. And their non-negotiables are a music studio where Hans can record his didgeridoo albums. And they want a room for her in-home Jan's candle business. And... They also would like an indoor rock climbing course for their kids to train on American Ninja Warrior. This is the, might be stretching what kind of expectations they bring into the show. But then you hear their realtor, Sebastian, has to work within their budget of $63. <laughs> By the way, Jan read an article one time about real estate, so she's an expert. So buckle up, Sebastian, for managing that. No, it can be challenging. House hunting can be challenging, trying to get a couple on the same page. The thing that makes it so difficult, really it boils down to finding a home, trying to find a home that ultimately you feel and agree is good enough. Because all of us, it, it really comes to good enough because if we had an unlimited budget, good enough's not a question, right? 
Like you could find the land and build exactly what you want or find the perfect place. But house hunting almost always boils down to at the root, finding a place that a husband and a wife can agree on being good enough. And of course, there are often restrictions and limitations that don't match the hopes and expectations. Those rather, okay, the silly list that I put together compared to budgets where how many times are you watching this show and you see the couple walking through the home and they're like, oh, this one's not going to get good enough. I don't like this, the carpet and this, the chandelier and all that kind of stuff. And they're complaining about the various different items. And we really wanted another bedroom. You only gave us this many. And we wanted a bigger yard. And this one's only this much. And then they separate. And then you see the talking head interview with just the realtor by themselves. And they're going, yeah, they're going to have to adjust their expectations with their budget and this neighborhood. Like it's hard trying to get all those things to work together and to match. Today, I want to take a moment to consider what makes a home good enough for God. Now, in our reading plan, we find ourselves in 2 Samuel. David himself begins wrestling with the fact that it appears he has a better home, it looks like, with his cedar palace than God has in his tabernacle tent. David's struggling with this. And as we recap really quickly, first and second Samuel, the book, first or books, first and second Samuel in Hebrew and in history are actually one book, one book called Samuel. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, it was part of what is called uh, the former prophets, being first and second Samuel, first and second Kings for us, and there are the latter prophets later in Scripture. But these are the former prophets. And Samuel is really one book, and later it was delineated into two books, that delineation intended to really separate and show the contrast between the story centered around Saul and the story centered around David. Saul being the first king, David being the ideal king, not perfect, but ideal Now, this is also a span that took place over 150 years, and when you read the books of First and Second Samuel, you often lose track of the, that, that feeling or the touch of that. This is actually a really long story because it starts off the book being called Samuel, and it, the fact that it is a former prophet, it's named after and starts off highlighting the dominant prophet of that day in that era being Samuel. And then later it transitions over to Nathan, but the book was started and written by mostly Samuel. And so, also, what we need to pay attention to and be mindful of is this is a thousand years after God gave the covenant promises to Abraham. As a church family, we're trying throughout the year to step back and keep a feel for, a pulse on the, the meta narrative of Scripture where there is this one story leading up to Jesus Christ where in the garden we saw Adam and Eve sinned and welcomed sin and death and destruction into the world. But immediately in chapter 3, God gives a promise to man and woman saying the seed of the woman will one day crush the serpent as the serpent is striking his heel. And we fast forward, of course, we know that that seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. But we have that first promise there in Genesis chapter 3 pointing forward to the Messiah. And then we have another uh, mountaintop uh, turning point, if you will, in the story of Scripture, where that original promise that a seed would come, a child would come from Adam and Eve that would crush the serpent, destroy Satan, so to speak, 
that that is expounded on and expanded even more in Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham is given a covenant promise from God that I, I will make you a nation. I will make your name great. Your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. And you will, uh, I will bless you and make you a blessing. And all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. How? Again, through his descendant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And here we find ourselves at a third significant turning point, reiteration of, again, covenant promises, not to Adam and Eve, not to uh, Abraham this time, but we find ourselves where God is giving a covenant to David. So let's look at chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, being mindful that this chapter with its messianic promise is a key passage in the history of salvation. 2 Samuel 7 and verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, that's talking about David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all, is, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. The prophet Samuel knows, or I'm sorry, Nathan knows that God is with David, that he's blessed him, anointed him. He's given them this day of, of peace and prosperity. And so at hearing David musing this, man, I live in a cedar palace, but the tabernacle or the, the Ark of the Covenant's just in a tent. I feel like God should have a better house than me is what David says. And the prophet Samuel seeing God's blessing and anointing on, I'm sorry, prophet Nathan seeing God's blessing on David, his anointing on him. He says, yeah, man, do, what, do what's in your heart to do. He's essentially saying, go ahead. If you want to build God a house, build him a house. But that very night, God steps in and says, hang on. So let's continue on verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Notice he is technically King David at this point. That you'll be prince over my people Israel. Verse 9, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be, uh, be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, notice this, here we go. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Hold on, what? This all started from David going, man, I feel like my house is better than God's. And then Nathan says, yeah, man, go ahead and do what's in your heart to do. And then God says to Nathan, hold on. Have I ever in all of this time after I led my people out of Israel, asked them for a house? Have I have ever required a house Actually, I want you to tell David, even though I've already done all this, I am now going to make 
a house or make you a house. This is also the same dude who is wrestling with all of this because he has a nice house. He has a cedar palace. And God says through the prophet Nathan, no, I'm actually going to make you a house. Continuing on in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, he's talking about when he's dead and buried, I will raise your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, in the literal sense, this is talking about Solomon who would come after him and build a house, build the temple for God. But scholars by and large unanimously agree that this is also a messianic prophecy pointing forward to Jesus. Because what they would consider, even to this day, the people of Israel look back at David as the greatest king of Israel that ever lived. And even still to this day, the people of Israel today are looking forward in hopes for another king like David. He was the greatest. He was the pinnacle of kings in Israel, which is funny because he was only the second king, but that is also put in in a way that he is juxtaposed and compared to or contrasted against Saul, who was not a good king. Saul was the first king that people chose. God didn't choose him, but he said, okay, he essentially approved their decision, let them have what they want. And what they wanted led to a, a bad time for Israel and the destruction of their king. And, and even his son, Jonathan, Saul and Jonathan both died in battle because Saul had stepped out of obedience of God or obedience to God. But God appoints David. He makes him the king. And David is unanimously consented as the greatest king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. And even though we see in scripture his own moral failures, the affair he committed, the murder that he committed, his own flaws, he is still presented as a foreshadowing, a early picture, a type of Christ who was to come. So there's a couple of other things that we want to see here in this covenant that God just made with David. Notice a few things. The covenant between the Lord and David has been compared both to the one established between the Lord and Abraham and the two, primary, the two primary similarities between God's commitments to Abraham and David are these two things. One, that God has bound himself by an oath. He committed himself to this. And two, that God made a promise to the individuals. The agreement that God made with David sometimes has been termed a grant or promissory oath type of covenant, a concept that suggests unconditionality. Let's pause for a moment as we, the first thing that we need to note here again is that this is a covenant that God promissarily oathed himself to David without, without any conditions. This is very much like the promise to Adam and Eve saying, the seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head. Very much like the promise to Abraham where God said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That God promises all these things to Abraham without saying as long as. Same thing here with David. He says to David, I will make your kingdom after you an everlasting kingdom. I'm paraphrasing because my memory's not great. 
But he's saying right here, I'm going to appoint your family to be the kings of Israel forever, essentially. And he's not saying as long as. Whereas we can go to Deuteronomy or Exodus, Leviticus, and see very many conditional covenantal promises from God. Where he says things like, um, you know, I set before you uh, life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose this day whom you will serve. And he says different things like as long as you or, or choose this and don't choose that. And if you obey my commands and if you follow my decrees, I will bless you and protect you and provide for you and guide you. But if you don't, I will cast you out and allow your enemies to come over you. All these conditions put into those covenantal promises. The, promise, the covenant promise to Abraham and the covenant promise to David are two promises that are not given conditions. This is God saying, I'm going to do this. And he says, and, and also here, this is a concept that emphasizes the role of the initiator downplaying the responsibilities or the role of the recipient. Not removing them. Of course, there are responsibilities of the person who's receiving this covenantal promise from God, but the, the magnifying glass, if you will, the zoom in, the spotlight is being put on the covenant promise of God who's saying, I'm going to make a great king lineage from you and your kingdom is gonna go for on and forever. He said, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is another t- key turning point in scripture, an expanded paradigm of the Messiah who would come. Not only would the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3 crush the head of the serpent, not only would the seed of Abraham become a great nation through which all nations, all peoples would be blessed, but also now we see the promised Messiah who would come as a king like King David who would rule and reign over all nations, over all peoples. And we see in the New Testament that a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord forever. Revelation shows us the picture of Jesus Christ coming back as a ruling and reigning king that on his thigh it will say king of kings and lord of lords. And so we have this picture here of King David, the best even with his flaws, the best being one that gave a picture of the true and better, perfect King, Jesus Christ, who would later come. Let's look really quick at Matthew chapter 1. Let's flip to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to take a second on this May 1st to look at, into a few verses that are very Christmassy. Not quite Christmas in July, Christmas in May, but Matthew chapter 1, the the, the author Matthew, fully aware of the importance. How many of you are like me that many times in your life when you would read the opening chapter of Matthew or you would read like Genesis 11, the genealogies of so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, you're going like, can we get through this? Wow, this is boring. And or I dare not say these names out loud because I'm going to sound really dumb, probably butcher them, these ancient Hebrew names. But Matthew, wanting to give an account of the life of Jesus, his gospel, Matthew's gospel, wanting to give a written account of the life of Jesus he observed, writing what he thought was important. Mind you, Matthew was with Jesus for three years. He watched and observed a lot. 
He could have wrote a whole slew of things. There are so many things that are left out, which tells us the things that are put in are the things that they perceived mattered. And Matthew, before he starts telling the whole story of what he thought was important about Jesus, he knew the foundation for the story of Jesus has to be laid on where he came from, on his family lineage, on his family line. In fact, let's look here, Matthew 1 verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, hmm, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz. Wait a minute, that's a name that sounds familiar and fresh and recent. Didn't we just a couple of weeks ago read about Boaz, the kinsman redeemer who bought back the family member into his family, Ruth. So Boaz, the father of Obed, of Obed, Eb, Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Wanting to show this connection here all the way from Abraham, where the covenant promise was given, all the way to King David. But it doesn't stop there. For time's sake and for me not stumbling over all these names, I'm going to skip a few verses because I don't think we have to necessarily read through them today. But it continues that lineage on from Abraham to David. And then from David, it continues on to the exile, um, into the Babylonian exile. And then we find ourselves uh, all the way from that connection, from Babylonian exile all the way to Jacob, the father of of Joseph. Let's look at verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Matthew recognized, even if Jesus is doing spectacular things, and even if he is preaching the truth, and even, even if he's doing wonderful works, and if he's helping people out, if he's not in the promised line, he's not the one. He understood, Matthew understood, it was important for us to recognize that the promise given to Abraham thousands of years ago and to David a thousand years after Abraham, those promises were continuing and connecting and leading all the way to this man who was also the Genesis 3 seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Let's look, continuing on in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What a dink. Do you think? I don't think it was a dink. And I just made that up on the spot. Actually, I'm sure that's probably something I heard from a movie or a TV show. But all of this showing the infinite, brilliant wisdom of God. 
showing all these stories in scripture that we think, oh, here's a random little story with a moral lesson for us. And although there may be moral uh, tangibles there, the point of all of this throughout is to point to Jesus Christ, who would be the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head, who would be the seed of Abraham through which whom all nations of the earth would be blessed by faith in Jesus Christ, who would be the seed, the son of King David, who would continue on the eternal rule and reign of Jesus. Don't believe me yet? Let's flip to Psalms chapter 89. The wonderful thing about the book of Psalms as we are right now in Samuel looking at the life of David Psalms is a book that was written, most of it, by King David, the man that we know Scripture calls the man after God's own heart, the man who we see loves God in a way that it looks like no one else has so far, that he has a passion for God that just oozes out of the book of Psalms. If you want to grow your love for God, I would encourage you to spend some more time in Psalms, reading those and just letting those words permeate in your heart. Psalm 89, uh, it says here in verses three and four. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now, this idea here, if you're just looking at the natural like the Israelite is, you're sitting here going, okay, is God a liar? Because Israel doesn't even have a king now, technically, in this world. They have a prime minister, And is that line traced? And what happened to this promise from God? Well, it was revealed again in Matthew chapter 1, leading to Jesus Christ. But showing here in Psalm 89, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let's flip really quickly to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, another messianic prophecy pointing forward to Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 6 and 7, sticking with our Christmas in May theme. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, that ruling term, that government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Interesting that the king would be called Mighty God. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I think about the famous Christmas movie, Forever. Wait, no, that's not Christmas. That was Sandlot. My bad. I'm mixing up movies. This is why we should just stick to Scripture, right? Here's what I love about this. This promise, this covenant. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Think about those imperatives of the covenant promises earlier to Abraham. I will make you. To David, I will make you a home. Abraham, I will make you a great nation. David, I will make you a home. Hear this promise in Isaiah of the prophet talking about the coming Messiah, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The zeal of the Lord will do this. 
we see God uses his greatest king despite his flaws. David is a flawed picture of the true and better king, Jesus. The man after his own heart. The man with a heart after God's house. The man who danced before the Lord, passionately celebrating the presence of God coming back in the ark. The man who fought for the presence of God in his kingdom, wanted to make sure that the ark was there. The man who repented in brokenness and in contrition when the prophet Nathan confronted him over his sin. The man who stood for the Lord against the defiant giant. God uses him as a foreshadowing of the eternal king who would reign forever. David points forward to the true man after God's own heart, Jesus Christ, who said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Christ, who said, I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. The man who heard the sick and lame crying off in the distance, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This Jesus Christ, the fulfillment thousands of years after all these ancient promises come to fruition and the baby born, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. To the man who would come as the king, where the people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Which leads us today to the question, How do we today in our lives, today in 2022, how do we offer a suitable home to the Lord? How do we come in line with with who God is, his desire to be close to us in our lives, where in the Old Testament we saw he prescribed the tabernacle where where his presence would dwell because he told his people, I want to make my home amidst my people. How do we today offer a suitable home to the Lord? Do we make sure that we have everything nice and clean here in the church, that everything's perfectly aligned and symmetrical in our facility? Clyde and and Joel do an incredible job keeping our facility top-notch and clean. Is that how? Do we make sure we have the right signage across maybe? Do we make a suitable home for the Lord by going through the right processes of purification rituals? Well, I, I think the beginning of offering a suitable home to the Lord is by recognizing that this church building actually isn't the Lord's house. It's a building. The church is the people of God. So often we think that God's house is this building. Listen, we could sell this tomorrow and it could be turned back into a grocery store and function that way. It's no longer the church at that moment. We could if, if God forbid we, there was some terrible accident and this building burned down, are we without a church? No, because you and me, all of us, we are collectively the body of Christ. We make up the church. The church is not made of steel and wood and drywall and electric wires. It is made up of people. We are the body of Christ. So then how, what, what, what do we recognize here? Let's look to Acts chapter 17 very quickly. This is a, a quick passage I want to turn to. Acts chapter 17, where the Apostle Paul is talking to a group of people. And this group of people are 
are, are Greek thinkers, Greek thinkers, and so they have a pantheon, multiple gods that they worship, gods, little g, false gods that they worship. They have a temple to Artemis. They have a temple to Diana. They have a temple for Zeus. All these different gods that they serve, they have temples for them, but they do have a spot in one of their temples that Paul notices is empty and reserved for the unknown God. And Paul uses that to point out to them, hey, this unknown God you've talked about right here is the God of the universe. And let's see what he has to say about it. Acts chapter 17 and verse 24. Paul talking to them, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul's trying to show these people, these Greek thinkers, that the one true God is different than all these false gods that they've made up, that they have built temples for, that they could dwell in. God, or Paul is telling them, listen, the real God who actually made heaven and earth he made everything who doesn't need anything from us because he actually gave us life. He doesn't dwell in temples made with man's, hand, man's hands. He dwells in temples that he builds, that he made. That's why God right now to this day is in the heavenly tabernacle where the Father is on the throne. Scripture tells us that Jesus is seated at his right hand where, every, where he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. That right now, at this very moment, you can be comforted by the fact that Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding for you. And that's where he is in the heavenly tabernacle that he has made. Saying these little and, and yes, we do see in the Old Testament that, San, that Solomon made a temple, they made a second temple, and that God's t presence did temporar temporarily dwell in that. But God's ultimate goal was to dwell in the temples that he made, like the heavenly temple. And we'll see one more dynamic here. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 for another quick verse. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, verses 13 and 14. He says this, in him, talking about Jesus Christ, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation, and believed in him, believed in Jesus Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul right here is telling the church at Ephesus, if you believed in Jesus Christ, when you have believed his gospel, his good news of salvation, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, comes into your life and makes your, your heart his home. Not something that we can do. Not something we can build. None of us have the capacity, the skill, the ability to build a home that is truly suitable for God. Which is why he's saying, I'm not dwelling in homes that are made with man's hands. He dwells in the homes that he makes. This is why Philippians chapter 1 tells us that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the perfect day. You didn't do the good work in you. 
No matter how much you want to apply your discipline and your dedication and your will and your grit, it is he who began the good work in you that will be faithful to complete it. This is why the Apostle Paul even said, man, I'm working harder than any of you, yet not I, but Christ in me. Even though for us it feels like our labor, our commitment, our grit, it is Christ who is working in us. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes in when we believe the gospel. He changes our hearts and empowers us to love and serve God. Another place very quickly, uh, in fact, we don't have time to turn there, so I'm just going to paraphrase. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul's talking to the church in Corinth, who is a church that was famous for having allowed a lot of sexual immorality to pervade into their church, Paul writing to them basically tells them, hey, stop all this sexual immorality because don't you know when you join yourself uh, to that, you're, you're sinning against God and against your own body. And then he says this, don't you know that your body is the temple that the Holy Spirit of God, and I'll look there, at the last uh, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul teaching us, where, where is God's house today? It's right here and right there. If you are a child of God, God's not living in some tabernacle or some temple. He has made his dwelling in us by the Holy Spirit. We just earlier took communion and sang, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, echoing this very verse. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body because the Holy Spirit for every child of God is dwelling in you. So the question remains, how do we, how do we offer a suitable home to the Lord? Because what if one day I went in your house? I came over to your house and I had been traipsing through the woods on a wet and muddy day and I didn't take off my shoes like a good Wisconsinite. And I walked through your house and I tracked mud all through your house. And what if I took it one step further? What if I didn't only track mud into your house? What if I started rearranging your furniture? And what if I looked at something and said, eh, I don't like that, I'm gonna throw that away. Actually, I want to take down your little Packers flag. I'd rather put up my Dallas Cowboys flag. <laughs> Scoff! <laughs> Blasphemy! Yeah, right? Why? Because it's your house, not mine. You bought it. You get to do what you want there. I don't get to come in and tell you how to do your house. You guys are going to have to forgive this southern boy and his trash Cowboys stuff, but... All of that to say, we have been bought with a price. We don't get to decide what is appropriate or not in God's house, our temple. And I'm not just talking about our diet or like Paul was telling them, flee from sexual immorality, but our very lives, the way that we live and him we live and move and have our being is a, a phrase that would continue on from the story earlier where he said he doesn't dwell in temples made with man's hands. In him we live and move and have our being. So daily, we need to be evaluating ourselves and going, God, this is your house. I am yours. You bought me with the precious blood of Christ. What is acceptable to you? How do you want the walls to look? How do you want the furniture to be arranged? What speech is glorifying to you? What behaviors give glory to you? What things in my life could offend you? or bother you. 
Let's look at our last verse as we prepare to close today. Ephesians chapter 4. We're still there. Just flip over a couple pages. What does it look like to make a suitable home for the Lord? Ephesians chapter 4. This passage where Paul is talking about the new life in Christ. Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Paul telling them, listen, don't walk like the rest of the world who doesn't know better. That's me paraphrasing what he just said. Their hearts are hardened, their minds are darkened, and therefore don't walk or live like they do. And he continues on verse 19. They have become callous. And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For you are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for the building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Remember, our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. The Apostle Paul here is saying, do not live like the world. Put off, put on, and put away. Those three puts we saw. Put off the old self. Look at your life and go, what in my life looks like the old self or the, the way of the world? I need to confront those things and put them off. There's a difference in confession and repentance. People are really good at confessing their sins, saying, oh, Lord, I did this thing. I'm sorry. The difference between confession, what I just said, and repentance, repentance is saying, Lord, I did this wrong thing. I'm sorry. Please forgive me and help me turn away from that. Confession is step one of repentance. Repentance is the change of the mind, the change of the life following Jesus Christ. And the gospel that Jesus preached over and over was repent and believe. Repent and believe. Put off the old self, put on the new self, and put away falsehood. It is false teaching, false ideologies, wrong doctrines that lead to wrong living. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. All those sins and wickedness and ungodliness that, God, uh, that Paul mentioned there, those are ways that we grieve the Holy Spirit. Just like I saw the disdain on your face when I mentioned putting a cowboy's flag on your wall. When we welcome ungodliness into our life, the Holy Spirit is grieved. And that's where we confess 
Say, Lord, I'm sorry. You don't want that in my life. Please forgive me. I repent. Help me walk in a way that is pleasing to you. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word, God. We thank you for the true King, Jesus Christ, who paid for our sin, paid our debt. And God, we thank you that you have made us your home today, that you looked at broken and dirty vessels and wanted to show your glory by cleaning and fixing and mending broken vessels to be vessels of your glory where people would look at us despite our flaws and see Jesus reflected in our lives. That in all that we do, we could point to you. And God, I ask by your Holy Spirit today, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, I ask that you would open their eyes to see the truth about this King Jesus, about the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, who came in mercy and grace and truth, forgiving our sins, making way for us to be forgiven and reconciled to the Father. I ask you to open their eyes. I ask you to give them the grace to confess and repent of their sins, to turn to following you, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, transformed by your power, to live in a way that gives glory and honor to you and also fulfills and satisfies and gives joy in a way that nothing else can. To the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.